Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It's episode number 92. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Crime. Mysteries. Suspense. And the other one. Crime, mysteries, suspense and thrillers. Thrillers. That's it. That's it. Well, I like to build the tension. Oh, oh, I felt it. My heart is going. (laughs) My brain wasn't working. It's a Monday morning. My brain isn't working. The sun is shining, though, and uh, it's... uh... (laughs) Like those two things are connected. No, they're not. They're not. I'm just setting the context as to where we're recording. Uh, We're in the Hoback Barn, which is the the hub of our burgeoning media empire. I like your optimism. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yes, it looks like a hub of a... Budgeting, budgeting, yeah, media but, empire. Well, uh, any good media empire will have the following four elements. Go on then, a hula okay. hoop. The, the hula hoop in front of us. <laughs> the uh, kids washing, drying their rugby kit. The odd sock pile. The odd sock pile. The strange green uh, monster slipper sat on top of a bunch <laughs> of unironed school shirts. Oh dear, and the uh, other one is just below where we're sat now. Yeah, that, that's right. And they don't even fit anyone. They're, they're. I think they're size three. <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, the, that's... the child who used to wear them is size eight. <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. You're right because we need to get some rugby boots for said t- child. Uh, and the other element is a really great recording studio, sat in the middle, or right at the corner. Does no one have room. one of those? Oh, of course, of course. Well, welcome to our little world of the Hopcast book show. And our guest this week is the amazing Greg Patmore. I bet he he has something similar then. Oh, he does. Well, I mean, he was saying that his wife is now doing it, but she's doing it under the stairs. I I mean, this is narration (laughs) we're talking about. Greg is a wonderful (laughs) audio book narrator and was uh, a guest at Harrogate Noir, organised by our own Malcolm Hollingdrake, uh, an event we sponsored two or three weeks ago in Harrogate naturally enough, at the library. Uh, and uh, we had a wonderful evening out with Greg. And we thought, well, do you know what? We should share that experience by inviting him onto the show. And without the beer. Without the beer, yeah, without the beer. But it was a great fun interview uh, and loads to learn. If you're an author wondering, you know, all about the process of audiobooks, I know I bang on about it all the time as a narrator myself. No, you don't. I do. I do. I bang on about it, creating character voices and all that sort of thing. Uh, it is, it's a great interview. So that's coming up. Greg Patmore is our big guest this week on the Hopcast Book Show. He's an average size guest. Um, <laughs> he's hardly he's obese, is he? No, I mean, he, he has presence. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, oh dear. No, he's a star name in the, in the world of narration nowadays. Uh, and um, I've learned a lot from him, I have to say. I, I even grew goatee beard as a sort of fanboy expression for that interview. 
Um, yes, he did. Then he <laughs> shaved it off in the middle of the night. <laughs> and I cut myself shaving in the middle of the night, so that didn't really work. Anyway, uh, that's uh, that's a, a private matter. Let's not let's not dwell on that. Let's get into some news, <laughs> as we do on the Hobcast Book Show, to reflect what's going on in the publishing industry. And um, I suppose the big positive story for the UK scene is that Waterstones say that they've sorted out their stock system. Um, they changed their computer system in the middle of the summer. And it caused havoc uh, in terms of the shops couldn't order books. No one knew where they were. All this sort of the warehousing broke down. Everything just slowed down as well. Didn't yeah, it? It was... and if you went to a Waterstones, you know, normally festooned with with dozens of copies of the latest titles on tables and all that sort of thing, it just they were running tables with single copies of books that had been out five years that yeah, kind of thing but weirdly i quite like that <laughs> i did too actually i mean it was it was sort of how the mighty have fallen but it just shows that one aspect of a business can have such an impact but it's it's not just on waterstones itself it has been a massive impact on all publishers who have been really frustrated that their titles the big ones that they've been releasing just haven't reached the shops because the whole thing broke Here, down. Here's an interesting question, though. Do you think Amazon have done well out of this? Because you go into the bookshop, you try and buy books. They say, we haven't got it in stock. We can order it for you. It'll take three weeks. You'd go. Would you go home and order it from Amazon? You would. But then the other, yeah, I think, I think that's um, anything like this is going to be powering Amazon. Um, but the other thing is that the discoverability of titles fell away as well. So often staff at Waterstones and indeed other bookshops who, who rely on that Waterstones sort of conduit, really. Um, there are you know, a number of people who've got sort of relationships with them. They go, go onto their system and say, what title is it? What's the ISBN number? No, it's not coming up. And that happened to us. Well, some of our books are coming as just not available. Yeah, and, and that's something we're trying to sort out. But the thing is, you know, actually it's out of our hands. You know, you do all the – you put all the data into the system, which is run by Nielsen – and then if you're publishing with Clays, for instance, it goes to Gardeners. In fact, Gardeners are the distributor for pretty much everything. And they're falling down to some extent. Um, I mean, I don't want to knock, knock them too much, but there's no competition in the marketplace in the UK anymore. And, uh, you know, it's very, very hard as a publisher to figure out where in the chain it's breaking down. In yeah. fact, it's near impossible, so, isn't it? You spend a lot of time trying to do that. Well, what happens is one of our authors says they've been to a bookshop the bookshop says it's not available can you check it out so i look at nielsen and it says stock available mm. so you know that's the only system i can look online i can't look at uh what's going on at clays or gardeners i have to yeah. ask them to check yeah and often we do have books in stock and for some reason it's breaking down between the retailers and yeah. the distributors so it's been a big problem, but I mean, Waterstones, it's self-inflicted. Uh, they moved to a new system. They say that they're sorting it out and it's gradually all the backlog of, you know, orders and stuff are being sorted out. But it's going to still take some time to to to, 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 to reestablish and, and, and clear up before Christmas. And of course, we're going into this week in the UK, which is the biggest week in the publishing calendar, because it's Super Thursday, this coming Thursday, the 13th of October, um, which is the day when the biggest Christmas titles come out across all genres and, um, f you know, formats and whatever else. But um, the the big one in, in crime fiction is Ian Rankin's latest Rebus novel. Yes. and um, Which has had amazing reviews, may I say. Julie Don Donaldson also has a Julia books Donaldson, out. yeah, the Gruffalo author, has two new books out in the children's market. So that'll be a monstrous. And then in terms of cookery, which is always a big thing for Christmas, everyone gives each other a cookery book, more on our cookery book to come 
Um, it is uh, Heston Blumenthal has finally penned another book. God, I've used that awful f- verb. Sorry, penned. To pen. Yeah, which is a very bookseller thing I'll to say. I'll forgive you. Um, he's written uh, his new book, and uh, that is expected to fly off the shelves as well. Not literally. It's, but it's really expensive. I mean, it's a big old, big old, you know. I've got the Leith's Techniques Bible just in front of us. We often put our laptop on there when we're doing interviews. Um, <laughs> it's just a big wadging thing that you can rest the laptop on. It's a brilliant book, by the way. I love it. Um, dipping in there and learning how to butterfly chicken or a capon or something. Um, it is, uh, it's It's brilliant. But, um, yeah, it's a big, big uh, week this week. Now, in that context, the bookseller were sort of canvassing um, opinions. And within one this article about Super Thursday... Uh, there is a very stark series of comments by one of our sort of contemporaries. Karen Sullivan runs Arenda Books. Now, Arenda have been around a few more years than us. They are very firmly in the independent sector. They were nominated uh, for an IPG award. Uh, they've also, you know, had many, many... They've um, had quite a few things, haven't yeah, they? They've yeah, they've had a lot of nominations and they're a fantastic company. And Karen is a regular at the literary festivals that she's, we attend. She's one of those people where we recognise, but we just have never got to speak to because she's always rushing off or busy or yeah. flitting here and there. And Yeah, she she's incredibly energetic. But um, judging by the comments that she's made to the bookseller and, and, you know, look, bookseller people, if you get somebody in the publishing industry saying the things that Karen has said, you make that the headline. You don't <laughs> talk about, you know, the, the blather about Super Thursday. I mean, you've just missed the, the ball here, in my journalistic opinion. Uh, Arenda publisher Karen Sullivan has pulled out all the stops for the appearance of Johanna Gustafsson's gothic historic thriller, The Bleeding, which is translated from French by David Warriner. This is what Arenda uh, the, the, the sort of basis of their company really is is finding fantastic books in foreign languages and translating them to English. And of course, uh, they've had loads of success and CWA daggers and stuff for the st- the, the people they yeah, found. Yeah, they have. Yeah, uh, and they do a really good job. The covers are amazing. I was just going through some of their covers. Yeah, that, you know, it, it's 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 a top notch independent publisher, and 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 we really admire them. But she says it's tough competition in the autumn. So we have embossed, foiled and sprayed the edges of every single hardback. And the demand has been fantastic, she says. Uh, We've got exclusive book plates and the Goldsboro designed and numbered edition sold out in weeks. We've been running a series of ads on all major social media platforms, have postcards for retailers, samplers nine months before publication and a huge campaign on Twitter. However, the Waterstones delay has really dented sales of the company's biggest sellers. She added the pressures of autumn, attending events and massive burnout have left her wondering whether to sell a render. There are too many events and festivals, she says, often poorly attended in comparison with pre-pandemic levels. That's what a lot of people are saying, because we have we only attending these for the first time. Everyone says, yeah. oh, the numbers are down. Jumping higher, moving faster, spending far too much money to stand still effectively, she says. The expectations on small and big publishers is crazy right now, she continued. Something is going to have to give or everyone is going to leave the profession. I have even toyed with the idea of selling my company, which I love passionately. It's too much everywhere. Um, yeah, that's pretty stark. Yeah. And I have to say it is. Uh, it rhymes and chimes and resonates with, with me to, to, to a degree. Yeah, exactly. That's standing still. It's it's yeah. it's um, all the effort and the energy and the money to stand still. 
yeah. that's the bit that got me because you know they they are she is a very successful um entrepreneur it's a very successful company but she's basically making it look um human you know she's she's saying it's not easy i do all this i get to, i am at the level i'm at but like a swan you know paddling away like mad <laughs> yeah no she does and 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 look she's done a great job um you know hugely respected figure and very knowledgeable with some tremendous authors and you know huge respect in the industry and and yeah she's feeling burnout and and i I understand that i really do i mean it is it is tough um the feeling that there are no easy wins anywhere in the industry at the moment nothing at all and i think that the pandemic changed the situation hugely because as i've mentioned before we've talked about this a lot the traditional industry had to wake up to not relying simply on their cosy relationships with retailers to sell their books. They had to get out there with the, with the shop shut and move into the territory where the indies were scoring, which is in the uh, advertising on digital platforms sphere. And they've caught up. And the fact they've overtaken because they can afford to spend more. I mean, it's also the explosion of self-publishing. Oh, which, absolutely. Which is a good thing. It's a great thing. But it has meant there are more books available for the same number of readers yeah and so you're fighting more to say mine is a good book read my book don't yeah. read all the others yeah. read my book yeah i think so i think i think the real beneficiaries of this are the people who who sell the courses that tell you how to do this thing <laughs> we've talked about that before and we've had one of them on the on the on the show mark dawson um i mean that is still the sort of i hate to say it's a myth being perpetuated because clearly when we met Jason Dalgleish last week, you know, or two or three weeks ago, Harrogate, who's been on the show before, he has sold 2 million books following those principles. And there are other people we've interviewed who've done similar sort of numbers, but they're the outliers. And I think that they're always being promoted as the people who are proof that anyone can do it. And it's just not true. I think they, they, uh, they don't give themselves enough of credit. So someone like Jason, he's got quite a good business head on himself. Yeah. So he sort yeah. of added his own um, extra elements to the way he's uh, yeah. marketed him- himself and his business effectively. I think he knows very clearly what his audience want. And, and not everybody does that, though. No, no, not at all. I think, we're, I think you know, this is a, 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 an issue for all first-time authors is that you, you assume, I mean, first of all, when you write a book, uh, unless you are very, very much down on yourself, you think it's going to be pretty good and there's going to be an audience out there and people are going to like it. Now, they may well do. They may well do. But I think the thing is that um, actually the really successful authors in the indie sphere in the UK, particularly at the moment, are great storytellers for sure. And they recognise that they have to produce products very, very quickly. So write books. You know, you can't just do one a year. Um, and so that, that's what they've... You know, they've they've basically built their success on turning out books three to four times a year so that the momentum is never lost. You know, one book pushes the others, keeps pushing the others. They promote their first book in series and they keep it going. And they, they perhaps as a loss leader, they spend a lot of money getting that first sale because they know they've got six, seven, eight, nine, ten books further down the line that are going to make them the money. Um, and we've talked about this and this is, you know, so it's, it's an industrial level of, of dedication to writing books and getting their methodology uh, in terms of getting those words down 
you know, it's very, very finely attuned. In addition to which, they've done all the other aspects in digital marketing, building their fan base and, and, and satisfying that. And it works for them. And I, I really admire that. And that's something that we're trying to, to follow as well. But of course, you know, we're talking about we have 23 authors, um, all of them at different rates of, of development exactly, in terms of, yeah. you know, different places in their career, the different approaches to the stories. Then, you know, the consistency is we want Hobet books, whichever Hobet book you pick up, it's going to be a great tale and, and worth your, your investment of the ebook price or the paperback. But um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a you know i think i think perhaps um we still haven't found the magic formula for making one sale of a hobbit book work for everybody else no not quite um there are elements where that has happened but it's not consistent it's not the volume isn't there yet so people do say to me oh i you know you just keep producing these amazing books and that's lovely to hear but it's in single figures at the moment that we get these comments back. I don't know whether there are people who think that and they're just not telling us. But we, you know, we feel passionately about this. So, mm. <laughs> well, I think I think the thing is, is you know, um, you have to convert. How do you convert that passion into sales? Because when it boils down to it, and this is the same for Arenda, she's that Karen is saying, I'm having to spend time, effort, money, in immense amount of creativity, just to stand still. Um, and we feel the same way at times. Um, and once that, you know, and she's been going a lot longer than us, you know, the initial enthusiasm you have, you know, the dream, you know, when it meets reality is is difficult to sustain sometimes. And we do have days where we just look at each other and go, you know, this is tough. It's really tough. And then one of us will pick up and go again with some fresh <laughs> energy from somewhere. But it's also because when you're running a business, it doesn't matter what business it is. Yeah. I'm not just talking about publishing. Mm. You can't take time off. Not really. No. You take little pockets of time off, but we couldn't go for a two-week holiday to the Seychelles. Well, so. no, we couldn't afford to, but <laughs> you know, you're right. No, I mean, it's just not It's not the way we're geared. We are the business. We are the two people who run it, and we're the people who do the majority of the work. Of course, we, we have some wonderful... Um, associates who who do stuff for us and you know from the editing to the cover design and 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 other aspects of the business but the bottom line is is that unless we're at the laptop doing things and pushing the business along and getting things done it doesn't happen yeah and that's a it's a it's a it's a very big weight um this is getting very honest but i think (laughs) you know this is what people listen to this podcast for because we're not going to dress it up we are ourselves and you know, any given time. So to hear Karen saying something like this, Karen Sullivan is just, is someone I look up to and admire. And I think on every level, Arenda is the gold standard in indie publishing. It really is. Mm. I mean, it may not have the volume of sales as say a Joffe, but the values, the values, the, the creative similar, yeah. values and the authenticity of what she does and her company does is absolutely up there. I hope she listens to this because we totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah, and we'd like you on the podcast as well. <laughs> we will. We'll get to, you know, we'll no doubt bump into each other at a festival and actually have the courage to, you know, to interrupt your, you know, charging around, talking to, you know, keeping your authors, um, you know, because she, she, we saw each other uh, at... She was uh, at Bristol, wasn't she? Was she was Bristol yeah. and at Harrogate. And so, you know, we <laughs> this year, and we didn't really take the opportunity to, to, to say hello. I suppose the last thing to say is that... Um, this it's it's refreshing in a way to know that because you you 
in in lots of aspects of life, though, don't you? You feel like you're the only one who's suffering. Yeah. And everyone else is doing everything perfectly and managing. Mm. And it's refreshing to hear that that's not the truth. Mm. That it's not easy. Well, I mean, of course, we've got you. You know, as a company, any company who wants to project success, and yet, you know, beneath the hood, that isn't always the case. Um, and and in a sense, we are taking a risk in saying the things we're saying now. Um, but you know, I would rather be honest and say, look, you know, this the the the, the effort and the, the the time it takes and all the money that's invested and all that sort of thing, it can gnaw away at you. Because there's not an instant gratification and 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 uh, reward coming no. forward. It just doesn't happen that way. It takes, you know, it's it's a slow build. Um, it's like the bamboo shoot analogy, isn't it? Is it? Do you remember? I, I can't remember the name. Of the lady we um, had on the podcast, business mm. lady who's written books. Oh yes, yes. And she was saying that uh, running a business is like uh, the growth of a bamboo shoot. It's a long time until it actually starts to shoot. But once it shoots, yeah, it goes up. Nicola Cook. Nicola Cook, that's it. Sorry, Nicola. <laughs> yeah, uh, Nicola was right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, there's no question that we're new to running a business and uh, we have learned a lot of uh, from mistakes that we've made or, um, you know, misapprehensions or whatever else. And we're still learning, and we will always be learning. I think that's probably why people love being in business, is because you're always learning. It's that that daily challenge, but finding the energy to to to, to get through the difficult periods. And um, yeah, I can see where she's coming from in terms of you know, is it worth the hassle that she's personally going through, um, you know, at the moment? And uh, yeah, we have empathy. Right, let's get to our interview with Greg Patmore. Uh, Greg, as I say, we we met at Harrogate Noir and is a wonderfully experienced actor and narrator uh focusing at the moment as a as a voice actor or rather I, it's hard to describe actually i mean he's sort of sort of putting caveats against what he actually does but he is a great narrator he works a lot in the united states on a lot of sort of um the, the popular genres that, that the united states particularly in fantasy and things like that which are really challenging books to do but it was a really fantastic interview i mean from my perspective it was the first time i'd really spoken to another narrator about the the whys and wherefores of the of the, of the business. Yes, indeed. <laughs> He's an amazing chap, isn't he? And he lives on a boat. No, he doesn't live on a boat. He has a boat. He has a boat. He has a very fine boat. And uh, that's his sort of escape. But they live in the, the Lake District, actually, he and his wife, both narrating now. And um, I think um, the thing about this is, you know, from, from a perspective, if you're listening to it as an author, then, you know, there's a lot to be got from here because of the way that perhaps from a narration point of view, it would be better to write a you know the, the 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 way you lay out your dialogue and stuff like that, um, which you know colours my impression of of an author as we're looking at submissions and things like that. So um, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking right, okay, you know, if you put too many attributions in, in terms of you know this character said this and then the other, you know, it can get in the way of narration. So that does colour my opinion. But I think um, you know we 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 find a um, a sort of middle middle path on that subject. Anyway, let's let's talk to. Greg Patmore. Great pleasure to invite and uh, be joined by Greg Patmore on the Hopcast Book Show. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be aboard. Oh, we you a... make it sound like a boat. Yeah. <laughs> like a ship it, Hopcast. Um, you know me and boats. Or a plane. Well, you'd love your boats. So let's let, let's make that very plain yeah. to, to start with. And <laughs> you showed us proudly your, your the picture of your, your latest, um, you know, Latest ride, as if that were if it were a, a car. Bit <laughs> <iffy>. <laughs> it's a 
pinned up Ford Mustang or something. <clears throat> yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> but no, it's wonderful. Um, I, I, you know, I've flirted with with boats over the years. And you flirt with everyone. I do, but <laughs> but I've never really had the. I don't know it. Perhaps you can explain to our audience. I mean, when when you get a bug like that, it's just in your veins, isn't it? Um, the funny thing is about boats. You, a lot of people have them and never use them. Um, and those for me, that's something I've never been able to get my head around. I'm not wealthy or anything. I'm not rich enough to own a boat and just sit it there for months. And then all you end up doing is paying money and uh, to to keep it. Basically, a boat is a boat-shaped hole in the water that you keep pouring money in. That's that's yes. what it is. And the only way it's worth it is if you use it a lot. So, yes, it has to be in your blood um, in as much as you have to really want to do it, particularly with a sailboat, because the sea, and particularly the Irish Sea, is not that kind. So, you know, if you if you look for perfect conditions all the time, you're not going to get them. Yeah, so you have to be prepared up, up this way. I live in the Lake District. Yeah, you have to be prepared to take the boat out and sail for the love of it when conditions aren't that nice. Um, so it's very easy to avoid the commitment of using the boat and the boats around mine in Whitehaven Harbour where I keep mine a lot of them don't move at all and I can't I just I couldn't justify that if I didn't use my boats almost every week in some way or other even if it's only to go to Whitehaven for the weekend which is not exactly a hot tourist destination but it's quite <laughs> no. a safe but <clears throat> even if it's only that you know the boat has to be used and hopefully next year we'll base it in Scotland and then that's a different story then you're just in heaven on earth basically wet damp windy blowy not often very sunny heaven on earth but heaven doesn't always have to have if the that's your kind of heaven then that's heaven. Heaven. But what i love the thought of is you know you're sailing off whitehaven and then you look back across or you look east and you just get must get the most unimaginably beautiful views of the yeah. lakes and, and the fells yeah. sweeping i mean up. the lake district <clears throat> the lake district is um gorgeous uh everybody every, kind of everybody knows that but it you know it's got the most extraordinary history in that it's it's half its life it's been scotland half its life it's been not scotland it's not even been england it was the last county during the you know during the sort of gradual conglomeration that became england um cumbria was the last independent county it was the last one to be pacified and brought under the rule of the one king and all of that so it's got a long history back to roman times the romans found it hard to cope with it the uh, the brigand the brigantes who were the the sort of the tribes who lived around here were very warlike very difficult very sort of um hard to put down so the countryside we've got the highest mountains in england not in the not in great britain but certainly the highest mountains in england here and, and it is a tiny but misleading people just go oh let's go to the lake district and they turn up in a pair of shorts in march and go up a big mountain and then wonder why they get taken down by mountain rescue <laughs> it's you know the actual conditions here can go from very nice sunny day to sub-zero arctic hell in a fraction of, you know in literally a matter of a few minutes hours so, you know so it's a misleadingly beautiful and tranquil place it's also a very dangerous place if you don't treat it with respect but the views, as you look back and you can see the whole mountain range sort of rising mistily. But the other joy of sailing here is if I look back east, I see this wonderful thing, the Lake District, this wonderful coastline. If I look 
slightly north and west of me, I can see Dumfries and Galloway, Scotland. And on a clear day, if I look out to my right southwest, I can see the Isle of Man. So um, you can see these very atmospheric, very ancient uh, landscapes just all around you and sailing in that is, yeah, it's kind of, kind of lovely. It, it sounds brilliant and uh, I'm getting jealous now. It's inspired lots of creativity though, hasn't it, the Lake District? Well, it has, yeah. It People has. go there and they wander and they, they come up with amazing Well, we've done, we've done that. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, I just remember us being in the Lake District when we came up with the name Hobeck. I mean, you know, we, we'd just come back from the Lake District. We'd just skirted it. We had? Yes, we had. Okay. Yeah, trust me, we have. <laughs> uh, when we came up with the name of Hobeck. But anyway, we're, we're, we're here to talk, night, not here to talk about before. boats. Let, let's, let's talk narration because we've, I mean, obviously it's something that I touch on on the podcast a fair bit because I've done a few sure. books. Nothing like as many as you, but um, it is still something that uh, I feel very passionately about, about sort of evangelizing how to write well for audio um the sort of things that perhaps you would advise i mean i i often dish this out as advice to our authors you know in the sense that there's a way to write that still makes sense for the reader but doesn't half make your job as a narrator a lot easier uh which is to you know think really hard about how many times you need to make an attribution as to who's speaking he said he said <laughs> but there's there's i mean i don't know how you feel on that subject yeah, a lot of a lot of unnecessary tags. You can go too far the other way as well and attribute nothing to the point that the poor narrator is thinking, "I've got no clue who's yep. speaking right now." And you're sitting there trying to work it out, and you end up having to just go go through it with a fine tooth comb. And it's all right; you do that anyway in your prep. But sometimes it's nice, you know. You can always tell a an author who's very clear in in what's going on. It's there's never a doubt as to who's speaking. Yes. Even if there is, even if it isn't given tags and attributions all the time, and also there's the other thing that I find really interrupting to the flow of storytelling is when every single he said or she said has an adjective attached to it. She said slowly. He said interestingly. It's like oh my word, we've just got to stick all these syllables in the way of the flow because the actual entertainment in a lot of books and particularly crime uh, fiction, a lot of the dialogue is where the story is carried. A lot of the detail you find in the narrative where people are going in and looking around the room and noticing these things, which are all important in the procedurals. And that's great to have all that. But the story is carried and the, the, ten, the tension is carried in the dialogue. So if you've got these two brilliant characters talking to each other and everything has to be tagged with said interestingly, said, you know, <laughs> and another trick I've, I've, I've noticed a lot of writers use in romance, in crime fiction the other things is when they're desperately trying not to head hop or they're desperately trying not mm -hmm. to tell us because it's I think bad in writing to constantly be telling your audience what a person's thinking let them work it out for themselves let the reader stroke listener yeah. work it out because that draws them in involves them much more it's like the radio theater of the mind concept if they're in there imagining stuff actively involved they're way more in your story than if you're telling them every single detail but the thing that does happen is to avoid saying he thought this or he was thinking about that, they start doing things like he ran his tongue around the edge of his mouth or he bit his lip or he wrinkled his eyebrows, things like that, which, you know, become habits. And I've seen this in crime fiction. I've seen it in um, romance and so forth. Um, and these repeated things, they, they become little foibles, little that almost tells. And it's like, 
I don't, I want to give you the impression that this person is thinking something, but I don't really have the time to work out a really clever way of doing it. So I'll just give you this mm. little shorthand for he's thinking something. Um, it would be worth just finding another way because there is always another way. There's something in an action that a, a character can do um, that doesn't need a lot of explanation. Um, that, you know, he paused. You know, that's all you need to say sometimes. He yeah. didn't answer right away. Um, you know, there, there can be something that is just, you're not telling anything, but you're not doing a, a, a little foible. So I don't know, all things like that get in the way when you're narrating. Um, and allowing the characters to flow and just talk to each other is a really strong point, I would say. And not telling, yeah, not head hopping, constant head hopping. Mm. Is, uh, I think it's difficult for the for the reader you know, if you're one minute, you're seeing this point of view and then the next paragraph, it's somebody else's point of view and then the next paragraph, somebody else's point of view. Some writers have a really bad habit of head hopping. Um, and I, 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 I find I can make that work because I can work it out in my prep. So I'll slightly change delivery or pace or rhythm or tone or something yeah. that allows us to see there's a difference here and there. But it, it's 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 maybe not the best thing. It doesn't make for the most flowing writing because you're constantly having to jump about. No, that is, that is a huge challenge. You know, it's interesting you say that because I think one of the things that I find difficult from a narration point of view, I can do the pauses after a long pause or whatever. Now, there's a there's an element of nerve when you're doing the edit. How long a pause do you leave in <laughs> to create the pause that has just been described by the author? That's one thing. But then when they've said he laughed, um, trying to do the character voice uh, again, you know, just how much of a laugh do I put into this voice? Who are you implying? Because I, laughed, you know, I'll, I'll read this bit and then oh god, I've got to do a laugh in this. Okay, so I'll go and retake it. And uh, you know, how about it, crying? Can you do crying? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, actually, <laughs> the, the more the extreme the emotion, it's easier to do. I think yeah. personally, it's the it's the nuance of a laugh. Is it a cynical mm. laugh? Is it a is it a? <laughs> but then you can't actually say anything while you're <laughs> you know it, it it's 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 difficult and sometimes i just leave it out i don't actually put the laugh in i just or i'll do something in in the breath at the end yeah there's 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 moments where um i found in terms of it's a it's a, t- it's a tough one there's there's one or two narrations i'm trying to remember which one it was that i i had read recently where um the character was in the story described as, you know, descending into the, these, this uncontrollable fit of laughter and trying to get his words out in between. And I can't remember which book it was. And I had to do that because you can't then say the word. You can't go, he's in an uncontrollable fit of laughter in an effort to get the words out in between, almost yeah. choking. You've got a whole <laughs> bunch of description there. And you sort of you, you find you you can't then go oh yeah that was really great mate guys well done that was really that no, wasn't that funny you know you can't do you have to you have to represent that yeah and sometimes some writers write do write quite theatrically and there are times to perform it full on I think and then there are other times where he laughed if I want to, if it I've often found something like that if depending on where that tag comes. Um, the for example all right it's a, a small rule of mine if the he laughed comes after what was said 
So he said something, he laughed. Then the audience doesn't know he's laughing. So I'll go, all right then, he laughed. And say it like that, because it makes sense. If it says he laughed and then he says something else, well, it's a question. Does that laugh pertain to what came before? Yeah. Is it part of, is it important to what follows? If it is, then I might put a little bit of a, oh, you're kidding me, right? You know, mm. oh, no, or whatever it is, it could just be a little thing. Or I might do exactly as you say and just leave the writing because the writing, the, 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 the reader, listener has been told he laughed. So they know, they, they can hear a laugh. Again, it's a question of we don't have to tell them everything either because that's one of the big challenges as a narrator, certainly in crime and procedurals. We, by the time you've done your prep, you know who did it. And you've got to be able to read the whole book in such a way that you don't ever give away who did it, that you don't ever over-egg it, but you do make the relevant things that the author seeded in the story. So you do make sure that they're there in the way that they're there in the writing, which is yes. not too much, not too little. And you've got to find that balance. Otherwise, you spoil the story. If every time the bad guy walks in, you go, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although you can find it quite interesting to do to over-egg the wrong character from time to time you know that somebody's a red herring you can kind of hint hint you can kind of push that character a little bit more or something Mm. not too much because then it becomes obvious Mm. so you can just you know the the, making the really bad guy actually nice and likable so that when you're listening and reading you don't ever think um that could be the bad guy you know it's like it couldn't be him because he's like really nice you know so There's lots of games to play with all of that, but the emotions in the voice, um, I think it's part of our job as narrators to reflect that relative to what's going on in the drama and in the writing, always in reflection of what's happening in the writing. It's not ours to go, oh, I can do an entire routine here. You know, that's not what (laughs) what we're there for. It's interesting because one of the recent projects I did, there there was an issue in the sense that there was a first person prologue from the perspective of the person who's going to end up being our serial yeah. killer. And I, and I sort of was doing, you know, it was this sort of fractured sort of, I suppose, fractured like Lancashire accent. And it was, oh, you know, see this voice feel, gives me the creeps. I warn I, you now, I, 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 you know, but she stared at me. She <laughs> laughed at me and all that sort of thing. And you're thinking, right, as soon as that voice turns up next, it's going to be very obvious that they're in the company of the killer. Yeah. Um, when he does normal dialogue and it's from a third person perspective. So I had yeah. to find a way of not being totally different, but just the, that internal monologue voice is a little bit more OTT in terms of his sort of the breathiness and the the passion, the hatred, the pain, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And that in normal, <clears throat> you know, when he's being more manipulative and comes back into the story and starts, you know, bumping people off, it's a little you know you can you can you can hear the echoes but it's not completely the same voice but that's the same as real life isn't it? i guess so i guess so yeah i suppose our internal voice can be sometimes very different to the one that we're presenting to the world i think so but it's always a challenge when the author makes the the killer in crime makes the killer speak even if you don't know who i mean but in the situation where we know we don't know who it is but we know it's the killer um and so that's always a challenge, you know, to think, well, how do I how do I create a voice for the killer that is near enough to the person that it ultimately turns out to be, but not so not so near that it actually yeah. makes it obvious who it is. So that sometimes means I'll make choices that 
in other genres, I wouldn't make, as in I'll make certain characters close to each other in terms of how they are vocally. Um, because mm. then you've got a number of characters who it could be. Um, and so the challenge is always to find their attitude. And then when the killer is the person speaking, the, kill, the in the attitude of the killer, that can be exactly the same as any one of the other three voices or four voices I might have picked out. But um, differentiated by this attitude that you never see anybody else display. So you don't know who it could be and it could go any direction. But it is difficult if the killer is a woman um, and you're trying to differentiate the women in your story by pitch or any of the usual techniques. So, you know, again, trying to stay consistent with your overall world, however you create it, or if the killer has a strong accent, any of these things that can be... um, Now, I sometimes do make the decision to have the killer speak with my hand over, over the mouth. And that mm. does change. It's it's not a sound effect because it's it's not created te- uh, in any technical way. It's almost like the person is muffling their voice or making mutter or making them speak in a monotone or something mm-hmm. when they're doing this thing or make it, as you said, in a voice. There's any number of ways. But sometimes, yeah, you're handed quite a challenge. You've got a book that's set, like some of um, Jason's books, for example, and uh, this hasn't happened, I don't think, but you suddenly might find the killer is a very verbose Scotsman. You know, <clears throat> and and what's more, he had ten cent self narrates while he's murdering somebody. Oh, there you go! Chop your bloody head off! Like, <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, that's never happened. But it would be a bit of a giveaway, wouldn't it? You know, yeah, 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 yeah you're right. You down the metal and pull out your intestines. Oh, <laughs> I do like something like haggis. Harry Fisher, if you're listening, that's your next book. (laughs) (laughs) He'll probably take that as an idea. In fact, he probably will. Yeah, he'll probably do it just to get, just to take the piss out. We'd be right. I'm going to do that. I'm going to make my make my killer self narrate all the way through, (laughs) (laughs) just to give me the challenge. (laughs) Um, When you when you're looking at a project for the first time, you know you get the get the commission, and you know you work across all sorts of genres. Tell me about your 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 preparation process because I mean I'm sure we all do it differently. Um and I must admit that if it's a book that we've published and I've already read, then I'd probably go straight into it rather than marking yeah. it down or whatever. Um but how much how much of it is in the prep? It really varies from genre to genre. With the crime fiction, I tend to read the book and I'll mark the dialogue. So I'll just colour mark, colour code the dialogue. Because that means when it comes to, and that ought to be enough, really, because I don't want to be overly, um, it's actually quite nice. Sometimes, sometimes if it's a series where I've done a lot for the same author and I understand how they work, sometimes I will literally just prepare each day's narration in the morning and do it in the afternoon. I don't like preparing. Um, I tried this when I first started, where you read the whole book and prep the whole book and then start recording. My memory's not good enough these days. By the time I've, you know, if I, if it's taken me some days to do it all, by the time it comes to recording, I've probably forgotten half the decisions I, I've made in my head and you end up having to refer to notes all the time. <clears throat> so what I tend to do is um, get an overview of the, of the book. So in other words, a speed read or something to get a good idea of where it goes. <clears throat> then go through and mark up in detail. Um, I'll make character notes if I need to, uh, if there are regular characters, I know who they are. So marking the dialogues enough for all the 
you know, there'll be several scenes always through the book that are just in the station or they're between the same, the usual suspects. So they're relatively straightforward. It's just a question of marking who's speaking at any point in time. Mm. Um, I mainly do that because I like to read in full flow and I like to, I like my characters to react in real time. So mm. I like, you know, if, I, if people are cutting each other off and arguing, I want to be able to see as I'm coming at it exactly where that's happening visually because then I can jump from voice to voice, character to character, completely on the fly, like there's six people in the room, rather than having to sort of reset my head every time for whoever's there, uh, or think, oh, is that? Oh, yeah, that's them. You know, and it just slows you, breaks the flow. If it's a, a thing like a fantasy, like a 24-hour book full of hundreds of voices, that takes a lot more prep. And yeah. I'll normally end up with sheets of notes. Uh, there'll be a, a world map, because almost all fantasies have their own world map. I'll ascribe um, accents to the world. So wherever any character comes from or wherever we are physically in the world, that will tell me if I'm in this world, um, if I'm in this part of this world, anybody here who's like a, a local yokel is going to speak in this sort of way. The upper classes here are going to have maybe Germanic accents in this part of the world. Um, this person is a, an ambassador from another country and they might be slightly French or something, you know. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you have to create this huge map um, and then work through all your characters as to who they are. Uh, quite often I'll ask authors to provide me a, um, a list with a, of all the important characters with a little bit of bio just about who they are, why that, you know, what, because otherwise you have to make all those choices yourself. You do, yeah. Completely yourself, which I don't mind doing, but the author's got a thought on this. If I'm working direct with the author, you can't always do that with the publisher, but again, the better publishers will ask the authors to provide that information anyway. The You know, so you'll take the time, um, The in terms of fantasy, the, the big publishers sometimes, oddly, are the ones that... I shouldn't really say that. Um, I mean, sometimes it, the, the, it's surprising how little information you get um, yeah. considered for, for very complicated jobs. And that's where it's nice to work with independent publishers or with independent authors directly because you can have those conversations. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I never just sit down, open a book and start reading out and recording it. That would be madness. Um and the amount of prep varies depending very much on, on, on what it is. Some books are quite linear. You know the story. You can tell once you've started reading it a while that it's basically some people don't have any great big intricacies. It's just this happened, then 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 this happened the end. You know, <laughs> that's basically the structure of the story. So you, you know you don't need to worry too much about getting to the end and then suddenly discovering, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was, oh no! Oh no! The killer's a woman. Whoops. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I've, look, I have made that mistake. I have actually gone into a thing. I think, oh, damn it! They're from, <laughs> they're from there. No, I, I put them in London, and they were from Merseyside all the way along. Um, <laughs> wasn't that's happened with characters that creep in. Um, yeah. Where you've got no information, you've just got a name when they first appear in one book, and then four books down the line, you realise right. this this person has actually suddenly been given a, a backstory and the backstory doesn't fit with how you did them four books ago. And you think, what am I going to do? I can't sit here with the cognitive dissonance of having a scouser who's from Norwich. So what am I going to do? I'm just going to have to add, take it on the chin. That was four books ago. If anybody notices, <laughs> let me notice. Yeah. 
carry on and this character who appeared four books ago and said three lines and then disappeared again, but was a scouser then, has been elocutionally retrained and has turned into somebody from Norfolk, you know. So <laughs> Norfolk, that, yeah. That, Could happen, <laughs> though, so, yeah, why not? No, I... I <laughs> It's no, you say that, yeah, you're right. Those are pitfalls that I mean, I've made that mistake once and I've never repeat it, but um, but it that is, I mean, one of the things that I find most challenging, I suppose, depending on the length of the project. So, I suppose the longest book I've ever done is about mm, 16 hours or something like that in terms of finished product, which is nothing compared to most fantasy authors. Was that I'm sure. Clive the rugby player? That was, yeah, Clive Woodward, um, biography, <laughs> and um, that's that was fine, but it, it is a marathon, and and yeah. and so sort of finding that energy knowing that you're going to be there working on this one book if it's a 20 hour 25 hour fantasy book with all those characters um you know it's fine when it's finished and we've done it and you know you can put it back but actually during the process the sort of thrum in my forehead as i think oh blimey you know i'm having a bad day here i'm not flowing i'm not necessarily getting through the text particularly slickly um this is going to be, I'm going to be with this one for, for a few weeks. And, and that, and that I find quite challenging. How do, how do you approach it? Yeah, no, you, you're right. It can be, uh, you can, you know, a book, a 24 hour book. I've stopped thinking about doing things in terms of the number of books. I, I think about it in the terms of the amount of hours. So an average book is probably about eight, eight hours, an average crime book, eight, nine hours. Yeah. So a 24 hour book is three books. So three books is, a month's work you know at least a month's work and a month's hard work of discipline every day in the studio mm-hmm. um and the thing is with a big fantasy you, if i get something like that i mean i just got a commission a really short notice for a very big publisher and it was a simple with a 14 hour book and they actually only want they originally when they gave it to me had a deadline that basically gave me two working days because I got the commission just before I came to Harrogate. And it was like, either I don't go to Harrogate, dump out on everybody and do this commission, or I've got to try and do a 14-hour book, including learning to speak Latin and God knows what else, which I've, I've never studied. And I just wrote back and said, you know what, guys, you know, I know I said I could do it when you originally asked me, but that was two weeks ago. Now I've only really got two working days. I'm going to have to decline. So they gave me another week. But a week for a 14-hour book, which with, you know, history, lots of complex pronunciation, Latin, God knows what, zero, you know, not, not much to, to go on um, in terms of information other than what I could find on the fly. So, you know, you do find yourself having to just bury yourself in it. Luckily, it's a fascinating subject. The, the, the writing is quite academic because it's, you know, it's it's a history book. It's not a an entertaining an entertaining book. So it's quite hard to speak it. The sentence structures can be complicated and very. You know, um, if you put it in the example, the sort of sentence structure you might get would be so. Uh, so you would find yourself on the corner, and when I say corner, I'm not really talking about a corner in the modern sense of the world, but a corner more like an intersection of several different byways across the way. And then once you're on this corner, you would look down the street, and again, not necessarily a street in the modern sense of the word, more to the you know, and the, all this kind of in parenthesis and yes. great, uh, academic. So you're constantly having to find your way through these quite difficult sentences. 
that can be hard. Uh, if you weren't interested in the subject matter, it would be absolutely awful to do. But luckily, I find it fascinating. It was, you know, it's a period of history I was really interested in. So, but, um, but then, do you that, find when when you break off for dinner, do you keep talking like that? No. <laughs> Yeah. You do. I do. I, I talk nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I talk at all in the middle of a job like that. I just talk utter gibberish. But you don't say, and now I'll get the saucepan out. Not a saucepan in the modern sense of the world. An ancient saucepan. Sulfur carrying soup, but not soup as you know it now from Heinz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to start doing that. Just, just, just for you, Rebecca. I'm going to start. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, no, Mind you, if I'm doing a steamy romance, that might be a little bit awkward, particularly if I'm down the pub. Well, that would be yeah. great. Yes, you have to go down the pub. I'd love essential pints of yeah when the bar when the when the, his when the bar lady says to me what would you like <laughs> well let me tell you <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but i i i do i mean because i step out of my booth back into family life um i do sometimes i mean when i was doing i mean, I, I think we talked about this when we were ha- having a, a drinks in in harrogate um i was doing this big roman epic three of them in back to back for at short notice and with a short time frame so I was in for hours my voice coming out ragged but I was basically coming out shouting it, it was in, in battle cries he, he would, he damn would, it woman bring me my beer he was throwing you know? knives and forks at me <laughs> yeah. and all sorts so, <laughs> silence <laughs> child <laughs> riding through the house on a chariot might be going a bit far but yeah <laughs> exactly but I you know I, well, I, I'm a cat I was so committed to the. I, I didn't want to step out of character, I guess. I mean, I, you know, because I, I knew I don't that know. I'm going to make a coffee and I'm going back in there and I'm going to be, you know, centurion, la la well, la. You're getting a bit method for me there, Adrian. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> and it's funny you're talking about method. So, um, I mean, as a voice artist, and, and, and that's, I mean, we're talking about the narration element, which is most pertinent yeah. to the publishing side of things. But as a voice artist doing, you know, commercial work or whatever, the other day I, 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 there was a job that came up on one of the, the message boards and I thought about it. And it was, could someone be Marlon Brando in the 1950s production of Julius Caesar? So they had to had to copy the act, the voice. Mm-hmm. Marlon yeah, Brando. That's easy. I could do that. Now, Marlon Brando <laughs> as the godfather. Yeah, I could probably do that because it's an extreme thing and you can use all sorts of, but actually getting that young Marlon Brando voice and getting the English, his version of an English accent, yeah, doing the speech, you know, friends, Romans, countrymen. I mean, and you know, then offering only 150 quid for the person who can actually pull this off. Yeah. What, what joy. <laughs> it's just a joke. I mean, the specificity, uh, specificity of some requests I mean, I don't know how you feel about it because I can I can probably oh. stretch to a lot of things. You, but when he gets that specific, forget it. Weren't you asked um, to do a, a leprechaun who lives in Boston but spent some time in Texas once? Yeah, who was also is an erotic fiction. Yeah, so that was that's an Irish <laughs> leprechaun lived in Boston, moved to Texas, and was back in New York. So or the something, the American accent had to reflect all of those elements and his height. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's my take on when? I get the first thing I, I'd normally say if uh, on this sort of request is um, I'm a voice actor, not a mimic. Yeah. So if you want a sound alike, hire a sound alike, uh, because that's not what I do. <clears throat> what I will do is take into account the inspiration that you're giving me in that character reference and um, bear it in mind in the way in which I portray the character, but it won't be 
Um, <clears throat> I mean, I did uh, recently a book which had a, a character in it and the author was very adamant that the inspiration was Tyrion Lannister. Right. And the, vo the voice that she heard was Tyrion Lannister. And I said, well, I'm not a mimic. I'll bear that in mind. And I bore that in mind and I found myself trying to mimic Tyrion Lannister. And I just, at the end of the day, I don't think I did too bad a job. But when I sent it to her, I said, this is not how I want to do it. I sent a second sample with me just doing it how I wanted to do it. Yeah. And even though the mimicking Tyrion Lannister wasn't a bad job, she chose the sample of me doing it my own way. Because the thing is, actors don't pretend to be other actors um unless they're playing that character yeah. um and, and yes they'll and even then they won't mimic that person they'll try and find a way to deliver as faithfully as possible the mannerisms you know the key elements of that person but yeah when it gets ridiculously specific um th there's there is a correlation sometimes between authors and control freakery. In other words, they create their universes and they are God. In the universe under their pen, they are God. They can literally make anything happen with, a, oh, not even the pen these days, is it? With a, a, a tap of the keyboard, anything mm -hmm. can happen. So just because you can say it doesn't make it so. Um, and I don't know, I think, yeah, overly specific things. Something like the, the uh, leprechaun you just described, oddly, I'd probably have a crack at it because it sounds like an interesting challenge, <laughs> but it wouldn't sound anything like the author thinks it would. It, it yeah. would end up sounding like, and I'd say, well, I'll take those influences on board and I'll try, but ultimately what really matters is do you, do you create a, a character that lives and breathes in, you know, in, in terms of what's happening? That's what matters whether they sound exactly like this or exactly like that, I don't think it's that important. Authors sometimes, um, particularly if they've never had an audiobook before, can get overly stressed about that. They want everything to sound just exactly as they imagine it. Yeah. And then you say, well, okay, do you want to just read me a sample, record it to me and send it to me, just how you imagine it? And they do. And it comes out quite often monotone, no difference between any characters at all. And you sort of go, okay, right, well, I'll, I'll take that on board, thanks. And then you go and do your own thing anyway. I'm not sure who said it, but there is that great thing when I'm given direction, I nod and I smile and I agree, and then I go and do what the hell I was going to do in the first place. Yeah. It's some major actor who's famous for, famously apparently said that. I think it might have been, um, what's his name? Iron, who's Iron Man? Um, oh, um, Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr., I think he said that or something, mm. You nod and you smile and you say yes, of course, and then you go and do what the hell you were going to do in the first place. Is, is sort of his approach on things like that. But then he's Robert Downey Jr. I'm just <laughs> well, I, 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 that reminds me of, of of how George Lucas was said to direct the original Star Wars movies. Yeah, that's great. Uh, just more energy, and it was always that one direction that he would yeah. give it. Yeah, just yeah. do it faster. Uh, do it more. You know, give it. You know, and that was his only thing. Whereas John Huston, Michael Caine talks about this all the time, that John Huston would, would um, he only gave him one direction, I think. Um, and that was for the, the, um, uh, the man who would be king, which yeah. was, uh, you can speak, you can speak faster. He's an honest man. And that was the one thing. <laughs> and, and, and this brings, you know, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because you're self-directing. 
a lot of the time. Yes, you're going to have some interaction with the publisher or with the, the you know, the, the client in some way uh, sometimes. But it is really you on a day-to-day basis as a narrator making those decisions. Yeah, um, you are doing everything. You, you, you're making all the directorial decisions. Um, sometimes it's nice when you do on, on occasion have a, you know, a studio job where you've got a producer who might be giving you feedback or something and you've got a bit of interplay. It's easier to keep the energy. You can work a lot faster because you're not worrying about all those things. But no, by and large, you and I sat in a box by ourselves all the time. Um, <clears throat> and you're reliant completely on your own discipline to to keep the quality thresholds high, to keep everything happening as it should. So it's not... You know, some people people say, "Oh, I'd like to do that." I think I've people say, "I've got a good voice." Well, great, you know, nice. But um, ultimately, that's not all there is to it. It's no. being able to sit in a box, self motivate uh, across the entirety of what it takes to do it. Keep your energy levels high. Have the technical expertise. You know, be prepared to apply yourself um, from beginning to end with equal, no matter what your energy levels are. It's it's not easy in that respect. And Looking at the industry in a wider sense, there's two things I really want to talk to you about. First of all, the democratization of everything in publishing, clearly. You know, everything so, in life. You know, you're working for, for, for Jason Douglas uh, and doing books. And so, you know, he has made a huge success. Indeed, many authors have, many people have been on our program, and indeed we're trying to do with Hobeck, which is, you know, you don't have to worry about necessarily settling with a with a traditional publisher so the market has opened up from a writing point of view but also from a narration point of view acx particularly the audible creative exchange has given people with a usb microphone a laptop a piece of editing software and probably a a duvet over their heads the chance to narrate audiobooks and the costs as a result and the sort of rates that uh, more established talent are, are being squeezed i mean how do you feel about that 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 change and the, the, the fact that anyone could really put themselves forward as a narrator nowadays i can't complain about it because that's by and large other than having been hired to do a job back in 2014 on an audiobook which was my first one um i found my way into it thoroughly via um acx as well myself in terms of you know finding initial work and call it beginner's luck or whatever but the first book actual book I did which was weird because I, I first uh, novel I did um, I auditioned in an American accent because it was an American novel um, it was the first audition I'd done I got it straight away it was a royalty share and over the time since it was published it's paid my highest ever per finished hour rate that I've ever had off the right. scale um, in terms of, uh, but it was, you know, I look back on it now and it gets some of the worst reviews I've ever had, not because I've, I've done it badly, but because things like my pronunciations of place names are not absolutely accurate. And, and you know, so there, there are a whole raft of reviews that say I'm the worst narrator ever because of that. But I still, even that's, even though it's the first one I'd ever done, even with all that taken into account, I still get 4.4 stars for performance on 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 that book on average out of hundreds of reviews and as i say it's earned its way many many times out um so and i have to say though i very quickly found i was lucky enough that 
after getting started, um, work kind of came to me. So I, I haven't actually done an, uh, whilst ACX has been used, because Jason publishes via ACX, but that wasn't yes. how, you know, he came to me via referral and we decided that was the easiest way for him to go forward with getting his books out there. So that's what we did. So whilst, yes, books are, I'm producing books through ACX, I haven't had a project from ACX off an audition or anything of that ilk for a long time because I haven't needed to. I've been too no. busy. Um, I'm not saying that's always going to be the case. Um, you know, you can never take it for granted. But, uh, yeah, I think what my concern isn't with people using ACX or or, or the democratisation. It allowed me to get in. I think it's a good thing. And me too, my actually, concern, in fairness, yeah. My concern is more to do with the quality thresholds that um, – in terms of not just the actual production, but the legal protections. You've got a lot of scammers that come via ACX. You've got people who um, don't have the rights to the books that they're actually trying to produce, you know, get you to produce an audiobook for. There's there's a lot of stuff that's not properly controlled and not not a huge amount of quality control effort goes in on that front. So I think over time that's damaging to the industry potentially. Um, from the narrator's point of view, I think um, there is also this huge spin-off, very American coaching <clears throat> industry that uh, you'll find there's a lot, of, you get the impression there's quite a lot of protectionism in the States because the rates there are a lot higher than publishers pay yes. over. Yeah. Most of my work is uh, relatively, it's all relative to American rates. Most of my publisher work comes from the States. Um, so, you know, it's important to me that I, I don't undercut other people there and I won't do it I won't go in at lower I won't go I won't work for British rates because in unless it's with people I know very very well um publishers in this country who have respect for what they're doing like you could sell I won't do I won't work for those rates because I'm going to only damage myself and damage the market you know for the properly skilled um, establishing, but anybody I've seen people start when I started and they've gone ballistic. I mean, I've had not a bad run of it. Um, and you know, got quite, got quite a bit of recognition fairly early on, but there's people who started at the same time as me who have probably put much more into developing their business plan rather than going from, you know, from project to project. And I'm getting a little bit old for launching new businesses and so forth. I'm not really, inclined that way i'd much rather work for hire um mm. keep life simple mm. but i've seen some people um certainly in the states who who've started off on acx and here they are running successful publishing companies with you know hundreds of books to their name in the same time frame that i've been doing it. um yeah. so i think there will always be a way through and you know like for yourselves as well if the industry was very exclusive you'd, you'd potentially struggle doing what you're doing so i think it's a good thing it can be abused it's a question of not helping those who abuse it not helping the the publishers who want to pay nothing uh, not helping the scammers who want to try and rip people off not just not getting involved in that doing your homework and looking for the quality work and the quality people and and working with that 
um, and the quality people, I think, are determined by their attitude and their output. If they do quality work for their clients and output quality end product, then it's worth being part of it. Absolutely. The other thing I wanted to talk about, we, we talked about this when we, we met in Harrogate, is the AI um, ah. issue. Now, mm. it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I picked up on this, this story that, um, for instance, James Earl Jones will no longer be the voice of Darth Vader, no matter how many times he appears in future Star Wars um, projects. And they're using a company in Ukraine to voice synthesize based yeah. on historical recordings of, of James Earl Jones as Darth Vader. Um, I've reached out to this company. We're hopefully going to get them on the podcast because um, they claim that this is the way forward for narrators in the sense that I could synthesize my own voice and do all the connective tissue. I could do the character voices, um, but within that, they'll do all the rest of it and it'll uh, speed up the workflow, or at least that's how I interpret what they're, what they're offering. And mm. um, they charge you $2,000 a year for this service. Now, some people are going to go out there and do that, I'm sure. Um, and try and make it sound as if it's not sort of one type of voice and then bolt on the characters. But it's an interesting situation where a lot of authors are looking for a cheaper solution. And partly that's been the ACX, people doing it for royalty share and, you know, taking the risk of it not being successful. But partly it is this thing of why do I want to pay, you know, industry rates, $250 per finished hour, the minimum rate that they do in the United States for a finished book, because that can add up to a lot of money very, very quickly for authors. And so AI looks like to them a really wonderful solution. But how do you feel about it? Um, you know what? <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess we're going to have to live with it. Uh, you can't, you know, computers, technology, whatever you want to say, uh, has removed uh, I mean, I remember when my dad, my dad used to be a bookkeeper for, um, after he came out of the army, he was a bookkeeper for a, a, an oil company, a local home delivery oil company. Yeah. And basically he kept the books and his job got redundant, got basically dis done away with by computers. So then he had to become a truck driver because the computers couldn't drive the trucks. So he went <laughs> and started driving the trucks. Well, soon now they're even talking about getting the computers to drive the trucks. So you know, it's nothing new that we're that uh, people are looking for it to be made cheaper. But um, I think if that's what happens, it, it happens. There's nothing much we can do about it. I personally will never take part in it. I wouldn't hand over my voice. And even if they're saying that they could digitize my voice, I can pay the fee and then I can produce 10 times the books I do per year and still charge my full rate. Well, you know what? If I was going to do that, I'd probably, I don't know, I don't know, I'd no, just no. Um, and part of this is because of the pleasure of actually doing the job. I mean, yeah, you know, there's something it, it, dishonest about it. There is absolutely no way an AI can do what I do. No way. It may be able to do an adequate job that an, an author thinks, well, for the money that'll do. But if for the money that'll do is your attitude, fine, go and do that. Uh, anybody who wants something, there is there is no way with all the different subtle subtle interactions the different character choices the telling of the story the relationship with the story that the random decisions that you make in the moment an ai is never going to do that it may well produce a perfectly adequate read and i've heard you know there are plenty of things out there already done by ai whether it's narrations to tv programs or whatever and they're adequate 
but that's mm-hmm. as yeah. good as it gets. They're adequate. And if adequate will do for you, then you're not a writer I will want to work for. No, that's true. Mm. That's a very fair point. Is is how you're happy to have your book read in an adequate manner. That means you probably mm. have to have it written in an adequate manner. Exactly, and, yeah. Well, I mean, what? I think the, the, the sort of voice, the text-to-voice stuff that's around, say, a lot of people use on YouTube, particularly, I mean, I watch a lot of stuff about, you know, naval uh, yeah. technology developments. Uh, you know, around warships and stuff like that, and they'll have a voice that speaks like this. You know, yeah, uh, the... it does really strange things as it's talking, and all of a sudden there will yeah. be a really strange intonation. And the, the, then they'll get, of course, when they get hit an acronym, they get it wrong. So the UK MOD rather than the MOD yeah. Um, yeah. will, you know, and it'll be the MK4, you know, um, uh, VX sort of, and they'll just not get it. But uh, it's getting more sophisticated than that. Anyway, I, I am conscious that we, we need to get to the random question. Hey, oh, we do. We do. <laughs> <Are> we there <laughs> already? Bex jumps to life. The smile returns and the mischievous glint. No, I was just thinking about sat-navs. It reminds me of sat-navs when, when, you're, when you're driving to Loughborough. Yeah. And they don't know how to say Loughborough. Well, I, I, I did enjoy, I mean, I, I, at one stage I had the, the Yoda um, yeah, sat-nav. that was me. That was my son. Oh yeah, oh yeah, right, right. So, <laughs> and then um, hmm, left, you must go. I you know, know. <laughs> I loved it. I loved but having Yoda. But because Yoda speaks everything in reverse, the, the actual yeah. the the bit that you, you really... turn, you must make. That. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, the, the thing I really we had one which was um, Hungarian grandmother. <laughs> and you'd be going home and say, oh you've made a wrong turn now you're going to have to go back it's <laughs> terrible this is going to waste so much time she's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> constantly telling you off because you've gone the wrong way or something that's one like. for it's you because you tell hilarious. yourself off when you go wrong uh, yeah i do i do i get really really het up i mean and he, and he says i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and i'm reading my book and i'm thinking what oh it's fine well i nearly wiped us out <laughs> on it care. we were driving back from Leeds the other day and uh, I nearly wiped us out on the M6 because I, I tried to I didn't notice I was reading I, a book I didn't see the car <laughs> you know and they hooted and whatever and you know I I, it, I was getting tired by this point it's about five hours of driving but yeah it was the first it, thing it, he it, said was sorry to me and well I was of course thinking, you, well, you would have been the I? one who were <laughs> who was most likely to die well I would have been died I would have died reading and I would have died happy then well, okay okay <laughs> but no I, I love I love the variety of I mean they, they had one with Jeremy Clarkson Top Gear did one and they had to bring it off the market um I can't quite it wasn't because Jeremy Clarkson had left Top Gear it was because he was a bit rude it was <laughs> you blithering f- idiot you know <laughs> Hammond I don't know if you've time for it but I given that when you were talking before about direction I do have one interesting little anecdote sure. about Sure. Um, which it was when I was doing a TV show, and we talked about it um, in the pub called Hatfields and McCoys, which had quite a stellar cast. And there was one particular scene where two families met in on the porch. It was freezing cold. It was meant to be summer, so we're all sitting around like we're dressed for summer on this porch. In a and it was made in Romania. This show, um, sort of outside this thing, and on this porch, you've got. Um, Kevin Costner, Powers Booth, Sarah Parrish, Bill Paxton. I'm there as the brother to the middle brother. Tom Berenger's there. So you've got all these kind of names, which I was kind of like just, you know, trying not to shit myself anyway, pardon my French. Um, (laughs) And it was one of the earliest scenes that had been made in the show. And it was pretty much the first time and one of the only times all these characters were in the same place at the same time in the same scene. 
So we started off, we did the rehearsal and then we went in and we did the first take and it all came through and it was directed by Kevin Reynolds. And after, after the first take, he came over and he walked up and he said, okay, I have one direction and it's the same for all of you. You're doing too much. And then he just turned around and walked off. And that was it. You know, it was literally, and that was his thing. You know, you're doing too much. Because everybody was trying so hard, you know, the, the, all these really seasoned actors, but they were all like showing their, you know. Showing their chops. Yeah, and he yeah, yeah. Came, you're doing too much. And turned around and walked away. And then the Love scene that. was perfect after that. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. And they just no, sort of relaxed. Thought, genius direction. Okay. <laughs> and actually, yeah, you think of the, the great screen actors, they're always the ones who do the minimum amount, yeah. you know, that they... Uh, I think of Russell Crowe in LA Confidential. He wasn't famous at that point. He was coming through, but he wasn't famous. And he stole every scene just because he held the stillness. Um, <laughs> he had that inner inner yeah. life behind his eyes that the others were were a lot more, you know, dramatic in the sense that, that they did more. But he would just, you know, in Negative close space, he, he would just, you know, step into a room and just take it over. And this, he did the same in Gladiator in many ways. The best bits of Gladiator, not the bits where he's waving a sword. The thing you learn when you're on a show with a, a big star like Costner mm. is an awful lot of that is entirely down to everything else. In other words, the whole shot is set up for that to happen. Yeah. Everything and, and the whole, so everybody else has to do the acting because they are like not even vaguely the focus. So they do what they do and the guy can stand there and literally just do, and you see, Costner would stand there and he'd just do nothing. Then he'd kind of look over there, then he'd look back, <laughs> then he'd go and spit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the. Um... And that's all he'd do. And you'd be like, oh my God, he walks on water. He wasn't doing Everybody else was doing the work. It's the Richard Gere thing, isn't it? Because uh, he, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the episode of The Trip with Steve Coogan and uh, Rob Ryden, where they, uh, they do a, they make up a scene imagining that it's Richard Gere coming back from a war and uh, the other, the, the character is off, off shot, you know, is doing his dialogue. Oh, Joshua, we've missed you. Mate. And he just sort of does his thing of, and I, it, this isn't going to work on the, on the podcast, but he just sort of, <laughs> he looks sort of looks down, does the half smile and then returns the, returns the, the eye line. And that's, Richard Gere's career in a in in a yeah. <laughs> that's why so many ladies liked him. Yeah, you know he, he sort of had that sort of half laugh. He was thinking of a thought, a mysterious thought, and he does this with every scene, <laughs> you know. But it's like you, the director gets to tell when you're watching a play. Yeah, everything's there, and it, it's it's fairly egalitarian. You know, yes, you can do certain amounts on a stage to make sure the focus is here and there, but the audience can decide to look over there if they want and just you mm. know completely not pay attention. But on screen, the director determines. This is why I think you'll see films where a really good actor apparently gives a really bad performance, whereas yeah. everything else they do is great. Chances are it's a really bad director because they're the ones who are, who are responsible for creating the focus and the, you know and all of the mm. things that lead mm. up to whether or not that person... And asking... They're the ones who determine when they've got the performance they're looking for. So you, the guy might have done it great five other times... But one time he's done a bit too much, and it may well be that this particular director likes that, 
and that's the bit that goes in the movie mm. and suddenly you're thinking well, he's pushing it a bit there isn't he you know he's not in control you're not in control unless you're the you know really powerful type of Mega hollywood star, person yeah. who has yeah. got overall control so <clears throat> it, it is fascinating but those kind of things it's the ability to do nothing um isn't something or the ability to do very little and dominate the screen is not necessarily entirely down to the person no doing the acting there's an awful lot of things have to come together to make that happen i think sure sure you yeah, know that that's a fair point and you know not something that you know i've done a bit of directing but i've not done the the, the front of house stuff um let's get to rebecca's random question now <laughs> i never asked a guest to do this before uh, but normally i would give it this sort of <laughs> rebecca's random but i would love you greg to give us a dramatic voice of god introduction to rebecca's random question please <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen we will now have the question the random question the randomest question you have ever heard from rebecca if you could live your life as a cartoon character from your childhood who would you pick and why Popeye. That's a great question. That's a great I question. love that. I'd, I'd pick Popeye. A, because I like spinach. B, because I like boats. And C, because he seems to have a brilliant time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the spinach element? <laughs> spinach, I still love spinach. Yeah. I still like spinach. Can yeah. I suggest spinach with a bit of garlic, a bit of butter, and some chopped up sun-dried tomatoes? That sounds good to me. <laughs> Yeah, it's something you've you've innovated, and it's just it is divine, and it goes well with green beans too. If you do the the garlic butter, yeah, right? yeah, it's my new thing, and the and the sun dried tomatoes. So who That's, would you be? I, I, well, the first first thing that came to my mind was Hong Kong Fooey. I don't know why. I, <laughs> ah, yeah, good one. I like that. Yeah, I, I thought it was. Just, I, I just loved the whole, you know, number one. You know, I, actually, I mean, he was a essentially like so many characters an utter failure of what he was pretending to be. And it was always his psychic who sort of kind of sorted him out. But I, I, I did love, but the other, I suppose the other one, if I was to pick one, um, the sort of combination. Captain Caveman. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Captain <laughs> Cave, you know, and, and just being able to produce out of my uh, body hair, uh, something useful. Uh, you do that spell- anyway. <laughs> Please don't go there. <laughs> but you're Captain Caveman. Well, is... uh, yeah. You know you can't put this on the podcast. <laughs> no, this is this is why this is why you know our our figures are going through the roof. It's just the random question. I think everyone else sort of waits for it, and you know thinks guesses when the the guest is going to stop speaking and we're going to get the question in. So, well, I want to be Shira. You want to be Shira. <laughs> Shira. Well, like uh, Alan Shira, who used to play for Newcastle <laughs> and Blackburn in England. Uh, oh, or, top cat, actually, top cat. I'd love to be top cat. Okay. Well, top, yeah. yeah. That was now I mean, that, that's a good call, actually. I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah, okay, DC. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Robert the Dibble. He had a great life, didn't he, top cat? Okay, DC, with that kind of really weird New York accent. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that was, I mean, based on the Phil Silver show, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was, yeah. That's yeah. a trivial pursuit. And, and, and I suppose if I was to. <laughs> If you know, then this is a corollary question, I suppose, and this is the this is Adrian's random question, but no, it's not random because it's it's linked. It is if you had the opportunity to inhabit the voice of a vo- another voice artist, who would you pick? Because I would take Casey Kasem, who was Shaggy, um, <laughs> in cartoon form, but obviously was the presenter of America's Top 
whatever um for years and and yeah. did loads he was a, a massive voice talent in terms of the money he made from his voice incredible yeah. but he was shaggy um so i wonder if there's any other voice talent that you'd love yeah, I, to to I, have I, when i was a kid i used to love doing um smiling in the average bear, bear, bear. <laughs> sort of um yeah the, the 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 yogi bear and he did loads i can't even remember who that who that who the oh voice. yeah I, i'm trying to remember now yeah but yeah he did all the all of that sort of thing yogi bear and lots of different characters from that period but i i mean there's a guy now who i think who who is the current voice of porky the pig who is just brilliant i tell you, i wouldn't mind his his uh his work is work, work you know he's doing loads and loads of different characters that are kind of really contemporary and current as well as some of these classic ones that are still existing from the past um but i don't know i i i, I don't really consider myself a voice actor actually i'm i'm, I'm an actor who does audiobooks yeah okay uh, and i've not actually done very much straight voice acting as it were purely just done a little bit radio drama and stuff like that but not a huge amount it's really been acting rather than doing all these cartoon characters yeah yeah the pat fraley's of the world who do that stuff yeah Yeah. i have one last very very quick question which cartoon character would you go on a date with oh definitely jessica rabbit (laughs) really (laughs) okay i think (laughs) Uh, yeah, Mine's Barney Rubble. I think I always like. <laughs> yeah, Barney. I thought I might go with Selma, <laughs> I, I, or uh, Daphne. Uh, who was the? Who, oh, Daphne, Daphne was from a um, Scooby-Doo. One, wasn't she? she yeah, was really she sensible. was cute. No, I, I oh. would definitely. I, I, I found the. Uh, it's quite fascinating to. Uh, in fact, I was doing um, a show once, an interactive show, and uh, in, as part of it, I, I was. Um, I took it upon myself to name, like, like if if anybody in the audience was rem- reminiscent of somebody, I'd name, I'd, I'd sort of go, oh, look who's here. Um, I was playing a sort of a John Cleese character, and there was a guy on it, and the table name was Jamie Murray. And I went, oh, Jamie, is your brother coming? You know, and also this sort of Cleese-esque sort of stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. In on the side, oh, and look, there over there, we've got Jessica Rabbit. There's this girl, you know, girl with the long hair and lovely dress, and she all her friends found it terribly amusing that she was you know she loved it the idea of being called jessica rabbit but i don't know she was very elegant so uh, i would have i would have yeah i would take a date with jessica rabbit okay yeah and i'm just thinking casey case i'm dead but the one that's alive i would take with tom baker's voice i'd love to have tom baker's voice you're not going on a date with tom baker's voice no no i'm not i appreciate <laughs> that i go out with his ex like lara ward or someone like that i mean he had plenty of exes but well i'm um, going on my date with barney rubble okay fair enough fair enough <laughs> yes i'd love to be tom you know fruity at every opportunity you know <laughs> it'd be wonderful well, look, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope it's been not too too mad and off. off. No, it's been good fun, good fun. <laughs> I'm not entirely I'm going to admit that it was me. I'm going to say it was a deep fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, and our friends in Ukraine are now, uh, you know, basically taking all of your those voices that we've given today <clears> and turning own. it into a virtual hobcast as we speak. I, I dare say. But um, if people want to find you, your work, where where should they look online? Please? On a boat, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you'll find me on a boat. Um, Work-wise, just Google, put my name in Audible um, uh, and a load of books come up. There's there's plenty of things there to choose from, fantasy, crime fiction, historical stuff. 
um, a, a bit of historical romance, a bit of slightly more steamy romance. I do, um, quite a lot of children's adventures, as long as I don't get the two confused. Yes. Also... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Imagine my surprise. That's quite a mashup, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's been fantastic. Thank you, Greg, uh, very much for joining us. No, brilliant. Thanks for having me. See you again, guys. Didn't miss a beat when we got to the random question. In fact, I really like the way he launched into it. A little bit more build-up to the one I normally do. Yes. Yeah, he did a good build-up to my question. He did. And he, and he coped very well. He did with the comic characters. And, um, you know, I still stick with the choices I made. I think I probably would go Captain Caveman rather than Scooby-Doo now. You haven't quite got the man jumper for Captain Caveman. No, I haven't at the moment, no. That's to say chest hair, if you're wondering what man jumper is. <laughs> <laughs> it's our own little shorthand. Uh, listen, this week it's going to be busy because we've got another audiobook release. Uh, I've narrated Sin by Malcolm Hollingdrake, the second book in the Merseyside crime series. And that's coming out on Tuesday, the day after this podcast is released. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's doing something where, you know, a lot of the accents... Are quite difficult, um, you know the, the Merseyside accents. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it, it was a big challenge. Chicken actually. and a can of coke. Chicken and a can of coke. Um, yeah, that was that's one of the trigger phrases of something that Michael McIntyre uses to get into uh, into a into a scar. If accent. you're listening, Malcolm, I would like that phrase in the next book in the Merseyside crime series, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed, yeah. Uh, which we believe will come out next year, which is exciting, very exciting. You heard it here first. We did. So that's Sin by Malcolm Hollingdrake out in audio, and you can get that from our website, www.hobeck.net, at a discount rate because we always undercut the rest of the marketplace. <laughs> um, we're not sure if it'll be out on Audible yet. Keep your eyes peeled for that because um, they take their own sweet time when it comes to releasing audiobooks. We never know, quite know when they're going to put it up, which is a, a real frustration, but that's um, you know private grief again. Um, let's uh, let's also reflect on uh, you know what we've um, been doing for our charity book. Yeah, so um, I've been doing a lot of work over the last few days on our annual Christmas charity book. This year it's a little bit different. So uh, last two books we've produced have been uh, short stories written by the Hobeck team and ourselves with a wintry or Christmas theme. This year, we decided to do something a little different. So we are offering an anthology of sh very short stories, so sort of more flash fiction, I guess, and an, a recipe from each of our contributors. Yeah. And it's called Cooking the Books. Cooking the Books from the Hobeck team. And uh, we've got to write our recipes in our little bits we of flash do, fiction. We do, yes. Mine's going to be a hangover cure, as created by Mungo, who is the... Uh, uh, manservant for one of my characters uh, in my series yet to come. <laughs> it's take really any shape or form at the moment. Um, but yeah, his, his own patented East End uh, hangover cure. And we have um, been collaborating with a charity to donate the um, profits to, and this is the Trussell Trust. Trust, I can't say that. Trussell, Trussell Trust. Trussell Trust this year. Yeah. Which is a food bank charity, a UK. You know, they're, they're sort of the main, I think. Aren't yeah, they? yeah, absolutely. So, we're, you know, they've graciously um, accepted our offer and um, we will, you know, their branding is now across the book and which uh, is always good. And we have to raise as much money as possible. I mean, it's, it's a shame and a reflection on society, of course, that, 
you know, they're busier than ever and, and will increasingly be so this winter. But whatever we can do, whatever you can do, if you support us by buying the book, it will be great. And we've been talking about formats for this as well. Yes, I don't think we should say too much because I need to just do a little few sums. Okay, we've been few talking sums about... First. It might be a little bit different. Yeah, we've been talking about formats, but we haven't decided exactly yet what it's going to look like. But um, yeah, the work is in play. So that's uh, something we're going on, and uh, we've got a myriad of other projects that we're working on at the moment, as we always are. It's um, It's been busy, and uh, I've got some studio work to do this week. Um, we're still building on Silence by Jenny Ensor, which is a multi-cast character, um, pre- presentation. And I'm just thinking, I was looking to, this week uh, at the... There's a, a series of audio awards as part of the New York festivals. It's um, it's one of the big things that uh, when I was in the BBC, we used to at World Service always try and get ourselves a New York award, and we managed to uh, on occasions. Do you get to go to New York to get the award? You can if you want. Oh yeah. You have to. I mean, they don't pay for it, but you'd have to fly oh. out. That's just unfortunate. But um, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, the last time I was responsible for anything that won an award was uh, a brilliant. A podcast series uh, called The Hurricane. And um, this was, uh, you know, a labor of love by two of my staff. And I sort of sort of helped bring it to, to fruition. And it, it smashed the uh, the podcast uh, award over in the United States. So there's, there's one that we could apply for, for the podcast, and also for audiobook productions. Um, I mean, there's dozens of these awards within the that particular award empire. But why not? Why not? Indeed. Uh, my philosophy is always you can just ask. You never know. It does happen. It does. It does. Maybe this episode will win us that award. Yes, maybe. Yeah, right. Okay. And next week we are going to be going to the Shoreham Word Fest down on the south coast next to Brighton. Uh, we're going for a sort of private party anyway. So we thought, well, look, William Shaw, friend of the show, uh, is uh, is hosting a uh, festival there, which also includes... Oh, is it named after him? No. William Shaw, Shoreham? No, no, slightly different um, spelling. But yes, it's nice to think that that might be the case. I like that. Yeah. Uh, And some wonderful uh, uh, authors appearing there, uh, including friends of the show, uh, Vasim Khan as well. So it's... um, you know, it's, it, it, it's just too good an opportunity to miss. If we're going to be there, we might as well go to uh, to, to see some, some old friends and some, make some new ones. I'm going to stun Vasim with another pair of boots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you are, yeah, I dare say. He does like your boots. I've got some green patents, Doc Martins. I could take those too. You could. <laughs> that would be the thing to wear, especially at a party in Brighton. They're lime green. Yeah. So we'll look forward to bringing you some, you know, some words of wisdom from the Shoreham Word Fest. Speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> next week, uh, you know, we're going to sort of yeah, flash mob them or something, whatever. We'll you... flash them. Well, possibly, yeah. That would be very Brighton. Um, it's my old patch. I used to work for the BBC there. I was, I was a reporter in, in Brighton for three years, maybe even four years, I think. And uh, I have great affection for the place. It is the best place to be a reporter because it's just so many stories just pouring out of the place. It's so culturally rich and full of crazy people who all got an opinion. You cannot fail to tell good stories in Brighton. And indeed, write good crime books too. So we're looking forward to Shoreham Wordfest next week. So let's um, let's wrap up this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget about the release of Sin by Malcolm Holling Drake in audio this week. Please check out all of our titles, 
all of our recent titles. We've had so many new books out in the last few weeks. It's really worth checking out, and uh, they're doing extremely well. So please have a look at our website, www.hobeck.net. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, you're new to us, uh, the Hobcast Book Show, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on about 13 platforms now, and uh, we grow and grow and grow. And uh, we're so pleased to have you on board. So from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again next week for the Hopcast Book Show. And uh, we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hopcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.